it's really nice to see you. I do miss you when we're not together, you know. I pray about you a lot. Thank you for being a part of Hammock Street Church. Whether you're here on site, thank you for being here on site. Whether you're with us online, thank you for joining us online. We're glad that you're a part of our community. Today, we are finishing up the series, Recovery Road. If you haven't been here for a little while, for a few weeks, you're coming in on the tail end of a movie. But it'll still make sense, and don't despair. If you'd like to catch the rest of the uh, sermons in this series, you can go online to hammockstreetchurch.com and watch it all. Watch the whole thing. So, aren't you excited? By the way, also, if you know anyone uh, you think would benefit from hearing the messages, uh, please pass this on to them. Send them a link. It would be great. You know, even though today is the end of the series, it actually marks the beginning of the work that we talked about in the series. We want to continue to make sure that Hammock Street Church is known far and wide as a church that unchurched people like to attend, or as I often say, a church for people who don't like church. That's what we're trying to do. We want to make sure that our entire area sees our Hammock Street community as an asset, as a valued neighbor, and not as a group of angry or self-righteous people who are seeking to force our beliefs on everyone around us. We don't need to do that because we have in our hands the truth. We have in our hands God's word. God will take care of all that. We want our area to be known, or our area to know us as that place that loves the Boca community. And I am confident that if this ecclesia, we, I like to use the word because it's a better word than church. It's the actual Greek word that means the community called out for Jesus. If, if we would just do the basic things that Jesus taught, we could play a major role in lifting not just our area, but in lifting our entire nation up while giving God the glory. Now, as we've seen in this series, our nation has this strange reluctance these days to give God credit for anything. But we think we can change that if we'll follow Jesus in some of the simple things he's asked us to do. So as we begin this message, I want to start off with a story that took place toward the end of Jesus's ministry. But first, won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time of worship. We just got to Sing and praise you. And now, God, it's our time to study your word. So as we do so, allow us to uh, find your word comforting, find your word illustrative, find your word illuminating, and find that your word changes us, changes the way we think, changes our hearts, and brings us closer to you. God, we, we thank you for this time and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's the story. One afternoon, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. And though his traveling companions were unaware, Jesus knew this is it. This is the last time he's going to go to Jerusalem. He knew that in Jerusalem, he would be arrested and ultimately crucified. And as a result, Jesus determined that he was going to fill the disciples in with regards to what was about to happen to him and them. Now, leading up to that time, the disciples had experienced an exponential rise in their own popularity. 
Why? Because they were close to Jesus. Their proximity to Jesus made them popular. Every place they went, actually, people were clamoring to get close to Jesus. And when they weren't able to get close enough, people wanted to get close to anybody else who had been close to Jesus, and that would be the disciples. So that resulted in the disciples becoming somewhat of a celebrity or celebrities, quasi-celebrities. And their newfound status was beginning to go to their heads. You know, you shouldn't believe your own press, they say. Well, that's what they were doing. So as they were coming up on Jerusalem, Jesus decided to give them kind of a dose of reality. As they were walking, Jesus began to warn them about what lay ahead. He said, listen, when we go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to be spat upon and, and mocked and then tried in this kangaroo court. And I'm eventually going to be convicted and put to death. He explained these things to them in very graphic terms. He gave them a list of exactly what to expect, exactly what would happen to him. But the disciples weren't really listening. Apparently, Jesus repeated this warning a few times, but the disciples just didn't seem to hear him. And then after a while, out of the earshot of the others, James and John kind of sidled up next to Jesus and said, yo, Jesus, this is from the Message Bible. It never gets old, does it? No. Listen, I'm sorry to hear about your being spit upon and mocked and, and crucified and all that stuff, but hey, when you become the king... Could we sit on your left and right? Can you give us positions of power in your new administration? Think about what that was. He told them, I'm going to be brutally beaten, tried, and killed. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you're the boss, can we work with you? you know, can, can, can we have good jobs? That has to be one of the most insensitive things in the entire New Testament. Then the other apostles saw James and John having this private conversation with Jesus, and they got upset because they realized that James and John were asking for this special entitlement from Jesus, a special position, and they complained to Jesus, like, hey, wait a minute. We've been with you just as long as these two guys. It's not fair if they get special treatment. And an argument broke out over who among them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven right after Jesus had just finished telling them of the horror show that awaited him. Isn't that a crazy story? So Jesus said, all right, let's try this another way. And he sat them down under a tree, and he said, how about this? You know how the Gentile rulers, the pagan rulers, you know how when they're in a position of power, they lord that position of power over everyone because they feel like their power entitles them to all sorts of respect and attention? You know how they do that? And the disciples this time are tracking along with Jesus. They're nodding along. And they're probably thinking, right, yes, that's what we want to do. That's what we're asking. Now you're talking, Jesus. That's one of the reasons that we've been hanging around with you, boss. We want to have that kind of power over people. You'll be king. We'll be your posse. We'll be your entourage. This is going to be great. They weren't getting it. So Jesus added, no, it won't be that way with you. Jesus told them, it's not bad to have authority, but if the day comes that you do have authority, that you actually have position and opportunity to rule over people, well, you know how the Gentiles do it? You know how the typical ruler leads and, and rules? 
by bossing people around and claiming this entitlement over them. Jesus said, you're not going to do that. He says, listen, I hope one day you have that kind of power, but when you do, you won't use it like everybody else you've seen use it. You got that? All right. What does that mean for us? Well, you've probably heard people say that the younger generation, whenever I do that, it makes me feel really old. But the younger generation, people between the ages of 18 and 30, has been called the entitled generation. When you hear me say that, if you're the parent of a teenager or you're the parent of a young adult, you're likely sitting there thinking, duh, you don't say. You're likely thinking the younger generation is absolutely an entitled bunch. They always feel we owe them the next thing or the newest thing or the shiniest thing, and they don't seem to care what we can realistically afford to pay for all these things. They feel entitled. They feel like everyone else has one. I need one too. And then seeing everybody living their best lives on Instagram and TikTok has just made that sense of entitlement worse. Like we all know Instagram and TikTok are curated images of our best times in the best filter in the best light, and yet we still seem to believe it to be true and our lives to be horrible. Now, if you've got other, if you have children and you want to start a conversation with other parents, just mention how entitled you think the kids of today are and then sit back and wait. Every parent within earshot will chime in. And to you young folks, yes, this is what we old folks do when you're not around. We talk about these things. Now, you feeling nice and superior right about now? Old folks, like me, I hate to disturb that feeling of superiority, but I owe it to you all to be completely candid. I don't think it's just the 18 to 30-year-olds. I think our whole nation, I think everybody at every age in America feels entitled. That's why we're calling the last installment of this series Entitled. And here's what I mean by Entitled. This is a little example. You might have some other instances in your life, but you know that feeling you get when you're driving and you take the local shortcut that you always take because you know you can speed just a little on that shortcut because it's really off the beaten path and you're not going to run into a police officer there. You've never seen anyone stop there. No one will ever get stopped there. But then somebody pulls out in front of you and has the temerity has the effrontery to do the speed limit, slowing you down. You know that feeling you get where you're, you want to go faster, but you're being forced to slow down? That feeling is the feeling of entitlement. All right, how about this one? You pull into the public's parking lot. You spy up ahead a spot. It's right where you like to park. You know, the one where you can get right under the overhang and avoid the rain or the shady spot you like. So you speed up a little bit. Just a little to be safe, though. You try to snag it, but at the last minute, a senior citizen in a 2012 Lexus crawls into that spot just before you get there, and you scream, ah! Or something less child-friendly than that. That feeling that made you scream because you felt the spot up ahead was yours, that's the feeling of entitlement. For some unwritten, unofficial, unenforceable reason, 
You felt like that spot belonged to you, and you weren't all that happy when someone else, thinking otherwise, took it. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've recognized your sin nature, if you've recognized that your sin nature drives you towards sin, drives us all towards sin, if you've recognized that because of that you need a Savior, and then you've recognized that notwithstanding our inherent sinfulness, God loves us anyway, and he sent Jesus, God the Son, to make a way for us to be connected forever with God by paying for our sins, by going to the cross, by dying on the cross, by being buried, by rising from the dead, promising to return one day and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. If you've accepted God, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you're a Jesus follower, take a minute and try to think about how Jesus would react in those situations and how he would react if he saw you losing your mind over a slightly delayed drive or a lost parking spot because you felt entitled to have things go precisely as you wished them to go. Have I made you feel guilty yet? Don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty, but hear this. Jesus was quite clear about the believer's sense of entitlement. Jesus would not ask, what are you entitled to? Rather, Jesus would ask the question this way. He'd be more interested in the answer to this question. What will you do with what you're entitled to? Now, the answer to the what we as God's people are entitled to here on earth, well, that will vary from time to time and place to place and nation to nation. Now, every nation has its own freedom rules, and, and God gives us freedom to live our lives and participate in the system of government of the place where we live, according to its rules. But here in America, which we'll speak of, our founders recognize that God has given us, his image bearers, certain rights that no one is permitted to take away from us. We call these inalienable rights, rights our Constitution defines as the rights to life Liberty and the pursuit of happiness, you know the thing. And then over time, through the operation of our system of government, our political representatives have clarified those rights and codified those rights and clarified and codified how those rights would be protected and encouraged. But it's once we know what those rights or entitlements are that we can come to today's question. Once you know what you're entitled to, then you can answer the question, what will you do with what you're entitled to? See, if just the followers of Jesus could get this right, it would change the perception of God's people in America. If we here at Hammock Street Church could get this right, we could move our Hammock Street community from the margins of our area to the vanguard of our area, out front and center, if we could get this right, if we could follow this basic Christian teaching, we could find ourselves leading our area in modeling the love of Jesus. And actually, if we could correctly answer the question, what will you do with what you're entitled to? We could be part of changing the whole world for the good. Now, that's a bold statement, isn't it? So how can I be so confident? Well, I can be that confident because it's happened before. Think about it. Beginning in the first century, so that's year zero AD to year 100 AD, Christians who had no money, no power, no political influence, nothing, were able to bring down 
one of the world's greatest empires, the mighty Roman Empire. And they brought it down within a few hundred years. Now, that might seem like a long time, but it's pretty amazing for a group of nobodies. And they were able to do it not through their military might, but through their generosity, through their understanding and application of the things we are about to discuss. You want to see those things? If you do, come with me to chapter 13 of John's Gospel. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Turn to chapter 13. If not, I'll put the verses on the screen when we get there. Let me set the stage for you before we go. As we're all aware, in the hours before Jesus would be arrested, Jesus and the disciples were together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. We just talked about that. We just talked about how the Passover is this Jewish festival celebrating God's freeing the Jews from their bondage in Israel and guiding them to the promised land so that they could freely worship him. And in Exodus 12, back in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to celebrate this Passover, this event, every year. So with that, we'll now go to John chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. So it was just like the night before the Passover began. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus knew that his end was near. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we continue verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So Judas was betraying Jesus, and this was already in motion. And then John wrote this. Verse 3, Jesus knew. All right, take a second here. When exactly did Jesus know? Did something happen at that moment? Did something dawn upon him at that time? Or had he known for a long while, and he just came into the dinner and he knew? Or, or had he possibly known before, but became somehow more aware of it at that dinner? The scriptures don't really specifically say, so it's up to our own speculation. But it appears as if John was implying that something happened during the meal as Jesus was looking around the room and looked at the disciples. So let's continue in this verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So it does appear that something at that moment dawned upon Jesus that made him keenly aware in the moment that the Father had put all things under his power and that soon Jesus would be returning to the Father. And at that moment in time, Jesus found himself as not only the most powerful person in the room, but as the most powerful person in the world. Jesus realized that he was not just celebrating the holiday as his people have been celebrating it for 1,400 years before. Jesus knew that something world-changing was taking place, and he was at the center of it. Jesus knew that that evening would mark a tectonic shift in world history. From that night on, the world would be a different place because of him. So what do you do when it dawns upon you that God, the maker of heaven and earth, has given you all the power in the world, and yet, at the exact same time, in the exact same place, just down the road, a group of people were plotting your murder. 
What do you do when it dawns upon you that you're the most powerful person in the world and one of your most trusted friends has already betrayed you and is about to sneak away to sell you for 30 pieces of silver? What do you do when you've realized all of this, but you have been entitled by God with all the power in the world? Do you see the conflict here? See, this is the hinge. This is where that situation bends. This is where history bends. With this, we've come to the place where Jesus considered this fact and determined what to do, whatever his power entitled him to. So, verse four, so, that's the drum roll, please. So, what did Jesus do with that entitlement that he got from the Father? Here's what he did. So he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing. All right, this is significant. Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis wore a robe as a symbol of their authority. It's a symbol of the authority that a rabbi has over his community. When Jesus arrived in the city, remember... There wasn't an internet back then. So nobody really knew what Jesus looked like. No one knew who to expect. They just heard, they had just heard of him. So when he arrived in the city, they at least knew he was a rabbi by his robe, by what he wore. So here Jesus stood up from the meal, and with all the eyes of the disciples on him, he took off his outer robe. And then I'm guessing in silence, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. So here's what happened. Before their eyes, Jesus had gone from a rabbi to a servant. Now, certainly each disciple had a different thought about, a different reaction to that event. Some of them might have thought, dang it, I should have done that. Like, that should have been me. Others might have thought, ah, I should have like, made arrangements or hired somebody to come in and, and do a formal foot washing. I should have prepared for that. And at least one of them thought, there is no way I'm going to let the boss wash my feet. But in that very moment that Jesus realized that he'd truly been entitled by God to all the power and all the authority in the world, in that moment, Jesus took the form of a servant. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So without a word, knowing what he was entitled by God to do and to have, he was given all the power and the authority, Jesus began to wash the dirty, dusty, disgusting feet of the disciples. Now, by the way, I'm not picking on the disciples. You know, they walked around sandals through dirt roads, right? So it's pretty gross. You probably understand why Peter resisted. Think about it. Peter had seen Jesus use his hands to heal a blind man. He'd seen Jesus use his hands to heal the lame, to cure a leper. He'd seen Jesus use his hands to summon the dead from the grave. And after seeing all that, Peter wasn't about to let Jesus use those hands to wash his gross feet. But Jesus said, verse 7, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand Jesus said to them, you guys, you think I'm just doing what you failed to hire somebody else to do, or you think I'm doing what you should do, but what I'm doing is much more meaningful than that. 
Let's jump to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. So picture this scene. Jesus, the teacher, takes off his authority as a rabbi and puts on the garb, the garb of a servant. And then he took off the garb of a servant and put back on his rabbi's robe of authority. And I'm guessing that you could have heard a pin drop while they were watching him do all of this. And then Jesus asked them, do you guys get that? Do you understand what I have done for you? We don't hear any response from the disciples. They didn't dare answer. They didn't understand, which was nothing new for them, by the way. Jesus asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus is saying, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, those are my titles, and that's the kind of respect I'm entitled to. But then he brought his point home. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example you should do as I have done for you. I've given you an example to use whenever it dawns upon you that you're entitled. I've given you an example of how to behave whenever you're wondering what you should do with all of your entitlements, with your entitlement to your time, with your entitlement to your money, with your entitlement to your influence, with your entitlement to your possessions. Whether you're wondering what you should do given the fact that you live such an entitled life, I've set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. All right? That's our calling. That is exactly our calling. The question is not, what are we entitled to? The question is, what will we do with what we're entitled to? Jesus said, I've set an example for you. You're to look for a way to leverage what you're entitled to for the sake of those who are less entitled. This should be the reputation of the church in our area. This should be the reputation of the church throughout the world. When people think of the church, even if they don't believe in our beliefs, even if they don't share our faith, they should think, wow, I am really glad that those Christians are around. I don't necessarily believe all the things that they believe, but I absolutely love the fact that the more those people have the more they invest back into our area. I love those entitled Christians. Jesus continued, verse 16. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you not believe in them, not study them, not preach them, not memorize them, not build a theology around them. You will be blessed, and the world will be blessed if you do them. If you ask, what should I do with what I'm entitled to, and then do, as Jesus said, Jesus has said, you and the entire world will be blessed. So, recovery begins when we leverage our entitlements for the benefit of those who are less entitled. Now, just imagine 
how different the world's attitude would be toward the people of God if they saw us consistently leveraging our entitlement for the benefit of those who are less entitled. I want to take a second here and brag on you guys from Hammock Street because lots of you guys already get this. Among us, we have people who are deeply devoted to others, people who care for the sick, people who care for the young, care for the elderly. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are medical professionals. Some of you are advocates for those who need a voice. Some people care for the down and out. Some care for the disenfranchised. Some care for the immigrant community. Some of you give of your time, treasure, and talents to anyone in our area who has need. And many of you give your time and money to God's community here at Hammock Street Church. And as part of Hammock Street Church, part of your giving goes to support so many other people. Your giving supports, for example, the ministry of Pastor Ronnie Perry. Some of you guys have met Ronnie. He's spoken for us before. He's planted a church called New Song Church up in West Palm Beach, serving a community of the inner city. Ronnie grew up in the inner city, and his church gives back to the inner city. Your giving here also supports a refugee community through the Ministry of the Refuge, led by Pastor Scott Kelly up in the Atlanta area. Through Hammock Street Church, your giving supports the ministry of RUF, Reform University Fellowship, which is a campus ministry led by Pastor Jeff Lee that serves students on the FAU campus. Your giving also allows us to come alongside of a number of local ministry organizations, the Homeless Ministry of Boca Helping Hands, the At-Risk Pregnancy Ministry of First Care Pregnancy Center, the Feeding Ministry of Food for the Poor, which feeds and helps with disaster aid and recovery for people all over the world. The people of Hammock Street Church will be participating in our upcoming outreach drives and Thanksgiving. We're going to do food boxes. We'll start that October 10th. Samaritan's Purse, we'll do the shoebox collection. We'll start that October 17th. All these things are coming up in a few weeks. And you'll even help by being a part of our quarterly neighborhood cleanup that we'll be doing on December 4th. And as we continue to come out of this crazy pandemic and people are once again finding the joy of becoming a part of a community of believers, we're making even bigger plans to serve our area in the coming months and years. Next fall, we'll kick off a campaign called Be Rich, where we'll provide you with a bunch of opportunities to serve and support our local community, and we'll partner with the faith-based organizations around here and do all that we can to help them serve others as well. And as our community, as our ecclesia grows, there'll be even more opportunities to be the hands and the feet of Jesus for those around us. You see, I really believe that this Hammock Street Church community is destined to be the community of God's people to whom everyone in our area will turn to guide them to God for support and comfort during difficult times. But in order for us to make that happen, every one of us needs to be a part. Now, for those of you who are already tithing, that's giving 10%, and volunteering your gifts and talents to bless our Hammock Street community, I want to thank you. Thank you all for your support. Thank you for continuing to believe in the church and our mission. Please keep doing it. Don't Keep doing what you're doing. And by the way, if you have a great story of what God's done in your life, how God has blessed you for your faithfulness, please send me an email. You could send it to info at hammockstreetchurch.com. I'll put that up there. Send me an email. If you don't mind, I'd love to get you on video telling your story. Hearing the compelling stories about how God's working in people's lives is just amazing. 
And if you haven't yet made that decision to set up automatic tithing and jump in and volunteer to serve, I'd ask that you take some time to pray about it. You can go to our website, fill out a form if you want to give. It's very easy. And if you're not ready to tithe, I totally get that. I was there. I've told you that before. But I'd ask that you just start. Prayerfully consider setting up some kind of automatic giving. Pick a rate lower than the 10%, just to get into the habit. But I give you my word. I give you my word. We will squeeze every penny you give, just as we already do. We'll squeeze it for the glory of God. Recovery begins when we leverage our entitlements for the sake of those less entitled. Now, here's a verse from the Gospels that summarizes everything we just said. It comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Even the Son of Man, Jesus, who is entitled to be honored and worshiped, did not come to be served. He leveraged his entitlement for everyone. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this moment in history that we're living through right now provides us with an unprecedented opportunity to change the game. An unprecedented opportunity to reintroduce God's faithful to a world of turmoil, a world that desperately needs to return to the God who made us and wants the best for us. So what do you say? Let's take the things that God has given us to which God has entitled us. And let's leverage those things for others so that they will know once and for all that it's God who gets the glory. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for our community that you're building here at Hammock Street. Thank you for each and every person here, each and every person who enjoys being together, worshiping together, celebrating together, watching online, coming in person, being a part of this community. God, I ask that you would continue to stir their hearts so that they begin to feel for your people, for those around you, for those around us who don't yet know you, and for those around us who are in need. Because God, we know that through you, all things are possible. God, we thank you for our time. <clears throat> we thank you for our community. We ask for your blessing upon this place and upon our lives as we serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.